Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Exodus, chapter 20, starting at verse 22. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this. You have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, lest your nakedness be exposed on it. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free, without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master." And only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. And then we're going to turn um, over the page to Exodus chapter 23. And we're going to start at verse 1 there. So it's entitled in most Bibles, Laws of Justice and Mercy. Exodus chapter 23 on page 80. Do not spread false reports. Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. And do not show favoritism to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. Do not accept a bribe. For a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. 
Do not oppress an alien. You yourselves know how it feels to be aliens because you were aliens in Egypt. And good morning. Let me add my welcomes to Paul. It's very good to see you here this morning. And uh, if you have a, a, a Bible, do grab it again. If you have a, a pew Bible, uh, page 78 will take you back to Exodus 20. And uh, also you'll find, I hope, on the back of the service sheet, on the back page, page four, a little outline of where we're going this morning. You might find that helpful to have handy as we go through the next few minutes. Uh, some of you will know that last week I wasn't feeling very well. I had a very hoarse voice and my colleague Ben Cooper very kindly offered to step in and preach this week. And I said, well, Ben, I think it'll be okay. I should be well enough by next Sunday. And then I turned to this passage and realized um, what it was. And I should have accepted Ben's offer um, to preach. I did think, where on earth will we go with this this week? And yet, I do hope this morning, with God's help, we will see how truly remarkable, amazing, and beautiful uh, God's plans for his people are as they live together. Uh, That is my hope this morning. Let's pray as we turn to God's word. Father, we do thank you for your rescue in Christ. We thank you that you bring us together as a people called to praise and worship you with all our lives. And I pray this morning you'd help us to understand the the shape, the the contours of the kind of people you want us to be as we live together in all the sin and messiness of this broken world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Monday morning. The alarm goes off. You jump out of bed full of life and enthusiasm. Another week to love God and love neighbor. But then on the way to work, uh, someone crashes into your car from behind. It was clearly their fault. And yet as you talk afterwards, they accuse you of being completely in the wrong. And uh, you feel within yourself a a rage welling up. How do you respond? At work over coffee, you find yourself embroiled with a few colleagues in a big discussion about the latest news headlines. It's all about the assisted dying bill. And they want to find out what you think as a Christian about this whole issue of euthanasia. What do you say? Uh, That evening, uh, back home, uh, you get a phone call from a good Christian friend, and they're in tears. They've just lost their job, and it turns out that for years they've been in debt. Uh, They can't pay the mortgage, and sobbing on the phone, they say to you, is there any way we could come and and stay with you for a few weeks? We've lost everything, just until I can find another job. What do you say? That Sunday, when you gather with God's people uh, at church, you see at the end, at the back, there is a, a homeless person. Well, you think they're homeless. They, they look scruffy and not the kind of person that the rest of the church family looked like, perhaps. And you notice that everyone else is just ignoring them on the way out. And you think, should I invite them around for dinner or should I not? That evening, as you tumble into beds and you look back over the week, it feels like your initial enthusiasm has vanished because loving God and loving neighbor... It's a nice idea, but living in this kind of world, where things are this messy and this complicated, it is actually remarkably difficult to know what that kind of life looks like in practice. We're in the book of Exodus this time. We've seen how God has wonderfully rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. And we've been seeing that he has rescued them for a purpose, that as he brings them to the mountain, they are to be a people who gather together and they worship and serve the God who has rescued them from slavery. And last week we saw, looking at the Ten Commandments, how those Ten Commandments begin to show us what a worshipping life looks like. And I think it's not a bad summary. It is a call to love God 
and to love his people. On the one hand, it sounds so very simple. But on the other hand, when we start seeing what real life looks like, as we start living in a community with other people who are like us, that is far from perfect. And we realize that uh, people let each other down and that problems occur, strife comes into the community. There is messiness and brokenness in this fallen world. It's much harder to live out these wonderful principles in practice. And that, I think, is why these chapters before us in Exodus are in the Bible. Back in Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, had the brilliant idea of appointing officials to take God's commands and to bring them to bear to God's people in daily life. And in my head, as we come to these chapters in Exodus, I imagine one of these hard-working officials with, in one hand, God's Ten Commandments over here, and on the other hand, a massive queue of real people queuing up for justice and for a hearing with all the hard cases, and the officials trying to bring to bear God's great commands with real people. And you can imagine calling out, next, and here comes a person. My neighbor's crops have, have failed, that the harvest has come to nothing, and they invested all their welfare into that harvest. Now they have nothing, and the whole family is literally starving. What should I do? Next, my neighbor's bull has gored my child. What do I do? Uh, My neighbor left a hole uncovered in their front yard and my child fell into it and broke their arm. What happens next? Someone broke into my house um, and it was before dawn and I ended up injuring them. What happens? There's an orphan on our street just sitting there in the mud. How do I respond? I think that's the picture we have before us as God's people try to work out and practice what it looks like to love God and love neighbor in the messiness of this fallen world. The Ten Commandments give us the principles, but Exodus 20 to 23 give us case laws that show us how these principles should look in practice. And these case laws are as messy and as jumbled and as troubling as real life is messy and jumbled and troubling in this sinful world. And I think these case laws give us a snapshot of how God wants to bring some kind of order into our world to restrain the brokenness and as best as possible to bring life as it should be. Just before we dive into the details of these case laws, just a few thoughts to help us understand how to, under, how to read these laws. And they are ancient laws that will cause us, I think, some distress this morning to our modern ears. The kind of things that non-Christians read in the Bible and say, look, you Christians, how can you possibly live this way and call yourself a Christian when your Bible says this? Three little thoughts as we begin. These case laws are not exhaustive. This is not the only place where the Bible speaks about life and conduct. And I suspect the reason why these particular cases are here in Exodus is because these are the ones that actually happened at this point in time. That's why they're here. The next case law is written for a specific historical context for particular people in a particular place. It's true in our laws in this country today. So I discovered this week that there's a law still in force, I understand, which says that you cannot fire a cannon within 300 yards of someone's dwelling. And you think, okay, I'll bear that in mind. 
But, um, you know, the, the, the context has changed. The, the, the people we're working with has changed. And no one's really bothered about cannons being fired next to neighbors' houses anymore. But 300 years ago, it was a big deal. And you see, with case law, I think part of understanding it is to work out what the principle was back then for those particular people in that particular place. Canons. Maybe the principle was don't annoy your neighbors. Be a considerate neighbor. Maybe today the principle is don't play music above a certain level after 11 o'clock. Or in our house, um, 10 o'clock, probably. Um, And so with case law, these cases are written in a particular historical setting. And I think our job, reading it many thousands of years later, is to work out the principle and to apply the principle to our place and to our people today. The final little thought is that we need to see that these case laws are a reaction against the messiness of a broken world. I think they are designed to restrain and limit chaos, but they cannot fix the problem. They are, if you like, a plaster on the wound, but they don't heal the wound. And it'll be right for us this morning to be left longing for a lasting solution that deals not just with the symptoms, but with the heart of the problem, which is, of course, the human heart. And more of that at the end. There's a huge amount for us to cover this morning. We won't be able to look at all the different scenarios in any kind of detail. But I want to focus on what I think seems to be the three most significant principles that we should establish from these case studies. And again, if you have a handout, you'll find the principles there. We're looking at these three key principles. First of all, God cares about every area of life. This section begins back in Exodus 20 um, with a reminder about the importance of worshipping the Lord his way. Uh, worshipping no other gods before the Lord And then verse 24, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, your sheep and goats and cattle. And then comes instructions on how the altar and sacrifices are to be conducted. Verse 25, the stone is to be undressed. But verse 26, the one who is offering must remain dressed. It seems clear right from the outset that sacrifice done God's way is incredibly important if this whole thing is going to work. And the section finishes at the end of chapter 23 with further instructions um, about key festivals. At times for God to remember how he rescued the man of Egypt and goes on providing for them. And so these two bookends of of sacrifice and festival uh, show us that God wants a people who understand how to relate to him through sacrifice, through remembering what he's done, But within these bookends comes the case law, this list of jumbled, random, and yet incredibly important worked examples. Uh, The gritty everyday life of domestic issues, employment issues, broken teeth, sorcery, widows, orphans, robbery, how to deal with lawsuits. Uh, These cases cut across every area of everyday life. And I think the point is that God doesn't just care about the sacred elements of life you know, sacrifices and festivals, when, when we gather as God's people. No, he cares about all of life, from the smallest to the greatest. I love uh, Exodus 22, verse 26. Perhaps just flip that. Verse 26. If you take a neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it to him by sunset, because his cloak 
is the only covering he has for his body. What else will he sleep in? When he cries out to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. Here is this great God who rescued his people from Egypt with mighty acts of salvation and judgment. And yet this great cosmic huge God cares about the neighbor with no coat when evening falls. And he hears the cry when he's called. You see how God cares about every area of life, the smallest to the biggest. And I think the challenge for us is clear. God is after people who don't just simply turn up perhaps faithfully every Sunday at a church meeting and look the part. You know, we play our role as God's gathered people, coming on a Sunday, perhaps a small group, saying the right things, doing the right things, and then going away the rest of the week and completely living a different life or ignoring the fact that God cares about our lives. That's not the kind of people God is after, nor is he after the kind of people who rightly talk lots about Jesus and the importance of sacrifice and forgiveness and then live a life the rest of the week that has no connection with the gospel. So he's after people who will worship him across every area of life not just on a Sunday, but at the roadside when an accident occurred and we're discussing whose fault it was. In the office, as we discuss the value of human life or when we get the phone call pleading for a bed or when our children are fighting over whose fault it was. In all these everyday moments, God cares about how we respond. He's looking for people who worship him, even in those moments. I know that I tend myself to compartmentalize things. I think that if And when I serve God in a a public, visible way, maybe in a small group or serving coffee, then um, that's the God bit of my life. And then I go home and I have the the me bit of my life, where it's all about my priorities and my goals and my agenda, my hobbies, free time, my thought life, in the office when other Christians are around, on the business trip. But you see, these chapters in Exodus show us that there are no compartments in God's world. He cares about every area of life. But having said that, I think it does seem that within this general sense of God caring about every area of life, he has a particular concern, point two, for human life. God cares about human life particularly. And I say that because when harm to human life happens, the the penalty that must be carried out is much more severe than for any other wrongdoing whether it be to animal or property. And I want to pick up three areas where we see great value placed on human life in these case studies. And the first you'll see in the handout is the area, dare I say it, of slavery. The word sticks in your throat, doesn't it, when you read Exodus 21, verse 2. The very first case study that God has for his people, verse two, if you buy a Hebrew servant. Our various translations put that word differently. Some here have servant, others the word is slave. And perhaps the idea is of a, a bond servant. And yet still, why are God's people allowed to buy other humans? That seems to be what verse 2 is talking about. 
It's the kind of verse, as I said at the start, that puts many people off Christianity. It sounds awfully like the slave trading of the 1800s. But here, I think, is where the context is so important. Imagine, as I said, your crops fail one year. You have no other source of food. You have no savings. There is no welfare state, no food bank. And quite literally, you and your family face starvation. That's the context of this world some 1,500 years before Christ. What do you do? You start building up debts with your neighbors as you, uh, they lend you foods. But after a while, that can't be sustained and you're bankrupt and broken with no foods. And it seems here the provision is that you can sell yourself to another Hebrew, another Israelite, in order to pay off your debts and in order to receive housing and welfare from the one who owns you. This is not the slave trading of the 1800s where people were kidnapped and forced into slavery. In fact, that kind of behavior is outrageous to God. I look forward to verse 16 of Exodus 21. Anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. You see, slave trading kidnapping is outrageous to God but what's going on here rather it seems that this action of a Hebrew buying another Hebrew is out of pity out of a desire to care for them when the unexpected and terrible happens in life and notice the goal of this buying is ultimately recovery verse 2 you're not allowed to keep your Hebrew servant for more than six years On the seventh year, they must go free. They have no debts to pay. They must not pay you back for their accommodation and food for the six years you had them under your house. They are free to go. All losses covered. You see, the the goal of this six-year buying is to get them back on their feet and back out into society as free people, debt-free, able to look after themselves. But notice verse five. If the servant declares, I... (coughs) I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free. Well, they can stay. And of course the point is (coughs) they wouldn't want to stay in a place where they are being abused or ill-treated. They'd only want to stay if they loved their master and loved the place they had provided for them. As one person put it to me this week, the picture here in Exodus 21 is more Downton Abbey than 12 years a slave. This is not to condone slavery as a good thing, but I think it's here to acknowledge the fact that in a broken world, crops do fail and people do get into debt. And in that day and age, this was the best way to control that problem. It's a picture of how God wants his people to care for one another in all the ups and downs of life. It is to be radically different from the other nations around them and certainly different from their slavery in Egypt. And so once we understand the context, I think the point is clear. God cares about human life. What about us today? Well, it certainly is a good thing that Christians were at the forefront of campaigns against slave trading and the kinds of slavery we saw in the 1800s completely at at odds with Exodus. 
And it is right for Christians to go on campaigning in the public square against um, those who exploit workers, who ill-treat those who are vulnerable, who don't pay a fair wage. Or if someone amongst us falls into debt, our desire should be to see them restored to a life where they are debt-free and able to stand on their own two feet. Uh, there's been much talk in the news recently about payday loan companies. You know, companies who offer people who are in debt a quick and cheap, easy loan, but the payback rates are massive because the interest rates are huge. And often it seems the most vulnerable people in society are those who take out these loans and they find themselves caught in a cycle of debt they can't pay back. And so it's been right, I think, for the church in this country to speak up against those kinds of excessive interest rates and say, hang on a minute, there must be a better way to deal with debt. There must be a better way to get people back on their feet, able to stand for themselves in society. That's the heart, I think, of Exodus 21. God cares about human life. And next, uh, more quickly on our sheet, God cares about murder and injury. Uh, Exodus 21, verse 12 onwards, uh, we find various scenarios where human life is harmed. And uh, one of the principles that jumps out is that every human life matters. To kill a, a human being is a big deal in God's eyes. Including, dare I say it, looking at verses 22 and 23, God cares massively about the unborn baby who is damaged or killed before they are born. And also injury matters. Goring, (laughs) falling into a pit. If someone loses a tooth or an eye. You see, human life matters to God and he wants his people to treat others with tremendous respect and concern. Notice also that God wants the judgment in these moments to fit the crime. The response should be proportional. If death was premeditated and an act of murder, then the sentence is more harsh. But verse 13, if it was accidental manslaughter, then the person can flee to a place of refuge. And there we discover later, find protection and a fair trial. There was a time in this country when you could be hung for stealing bread. Is that a fair punishment? How do we decide? Well, I think Exodus would say no. It's far too harsh. And I'm thankful again for Christians who in this country over the years have campaigned for a legal system that acts proportionate to the crime. And I think as Christians we need to go on speaking when it comes to issues of human life speaking God's principles into our society and I think for us it'll include issues regarding assisted dying and it goes on to include I say issues of abortion for God cares about every human life Uh, finally the widow and the orphan Uh, look at Exodus 22 verse 22 over the page 22 verse 22. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Or Exodus 23 verse 6. Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. There's a wonderful picture in Exodus 23, if you kept reading on, of 
of how farmers are to leave their fields to have a Sabbath rest once every seven years. And it's a brilliant model. So if you have, I don't know, dozens of farmers, if they're all working on different cycles, then at any one point there'll be a number of farms where the farmers leave their fields fallow for a year. They don't touch it. And the point, we're told, is so that the poor, the widow, the needy can go into the fields and they can pick the, the, the harvest for themselves and so be cared for. It's a wonderful picture of how in that context, at that time, God wanted his people to have a particular eye for the widow, the orphan, the needy, the alien amongst them. And God remains concerned for the widow and the orphan today. Remember the words of James, James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows. And so it is totally right that Christians have been at the forefront of social reform over the years, campaigning for a society that cares for those who are vulnerable and weak. Think of the great reforms of Shaftesbury over the years. And we should go on campaigning for those who are vulnerable in our society, standing up for the weak, for the Lord loves that when his people act that way. God cares about human life. I was struck this last week by an article someone sent me from the New Statesman. It's by someone called Tom Hollands. And he grapples with this question about where our moral compass comes from in this country, in this society. And many people think that our moral compass just... It's just there. It just comes to us. But he says no. And so he writes, uh, the reason why we have this moral compass, it is uh, why we generally assume that every human life is of equal value. In my morals and ethics, I have learned to accept that I am not Greek or Roman at all, but thoroughly and proudly Christian. And see, his point of his article is that uh, we live the way we do in this country because we are living off a Christian heritage. We enjoy a legal system, a welfare system that is Christian. But of course, as this country walks increasingly away from its Christian roots, I suspect we will find increasingly that we need to stand up and speak for God's way in this world. God cares about human life. We are, of course, bound to wonder as we look around the world today, what will enable human life to go on being cared for because there is so much evil and wickedness in the world. And no amount of laws and legislation will protect everyone all the time. It's a question that we are bound to ask, even from Exodus. We'll come to that in just a moment. But finally, point three, God cares about justice. Where possible, justice looks like restitution in Exodus. So, for example, in Exodus 22, verse 4, if the stolen animal is found alive in his possession, that is the thief's possession, whether ox or donkey or sheep, he must pay back double. Think of Zacchaeus in the New Testament, who for years overtaxed God's people. When he became a follower of Jesus, he committed to giving back half of his possessions to the poor. And if he had um, overtaxed anyone, he would pay back four times the amount he owed. It's a great response of Christian discipleship to want to make restitution if there's been a wrong committed. And that's the principle, I think, here in Exodus. God's people should make restitution to other people if they have caused a wrong But there is another angle in the New Testament on this issue of restitution for 
if we have, as Christians have been wronged by other Christians, rather than demanding restitution, the New Testament says that we should be quick to forgive. Jesus, Matthew 5, said, you've heard it said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, if someone strikes you, we'll turn the other cheek. You see, as Christians, when a Christian wrongs us, we should be very slow to demand repayment and very quick to offer forgiveness. For that is what our Lord Jesus would want of us. Matthew 18, his disciples say to him, Lord, how many times should we forgive a brother? Seven times? Jesus says, 77 times. And so whilst I think it's right as Christians that if we have caused the wrong, we should restore and put things right. At the same time, if we've experienced wrong, we shouldn't go around hunting for restitution. That seems to be the New Testament fulfillment of these words. But it's hard. If you ever experienced another Christian treating you in a wrong way, and you will, for each one of us in this room, we're still far from perfect and we experience some kind of injustice, we do long for justice. We, we long for restitution. So where do we find it? Again, we'll come back to that in just a moment. The other dynamic we have at work here in Exodus is the dynamic of retribution. And this comes into play where it seems that <coughs> it is impossible to achieve restitution. In other words, that the crime committed is such that it can't be put right. And if that happens, then the one who caused the crime has to experience retribution. And it seems here that the retribution is to them, for them themselves to experience something of the pain and chaos that they inflicted on someone else. So if they cause someone to lose a tooth, they themselves have to lose a tooth. If they themselves cause someone to lose life, they themselves should lose life. That seems to be the principle of retribution here in Exodus. But where does this leave us as Christians? For there will be times when we commit a wrong deed and we cannot make restitution. We cannot put it right. We cannot undo a wrong. And more importantly, there are times when we sin against God and we cannot put it right. Our sin matters to God. Are we people who should experience God's retribution? That seems to be the principle here in Exodus. Well, on one hand, the answer is yes. God demands retribution for every sin. We deserve that response from God. That's what Exodus shows us. But as we finish, Exodus also points us forward to a more perfect and final sacrifice. You see, this section begins in Exodus talking about the sacrifice of goats and bulls but we discover that these animals could never take away, they can never deal with the, the, the raw sin of humanity. They can't bring about retribution and cover for that kind of sin. But when Jesus Christ came into the world, he entered into our very brokenness, into our very sin. And on the cross, he experienced all the, the, the chaos and the pain of God's anger at the sin of the world. And he died the death that we all deserve for our sin that we commit against each other and against God. And on the cross, as he paid the price for our sin, 
there we find that retribution has indeed been paid. A life has been given that was demanded, but not this time our life and not our blood, but the life of our perfect substitute and savior, Jesus Christ. And I think Exodus, when we see God's standards, God's demands, and we realize that we we don't live up to them, that we are people who deserve God's retribution, well, it becomes all the sweeter to realize that the Lord Jesus has come and stood in our place. And as people who experience that kind of forgiveness from the Lord, well, we should then become people who are the quickest on the face of this planet to forgive our brothers and sisters when they wrong us. For we have experienced much of God's mercy and grace, and we should pass on that mercy and grace to others. So it's Monday morning, a new week to love God and love neighbor. What should we do? What should it look like? Can I say, it will at times be incredibly messy. It will be confusing. There'll be moments when we think, I don't know what to do. But here I think we have the principles to guide us. And we have wonderfully something that these people in Exodus did not have. We have a wonderful savior. He doesn't just guide us, but has also died for us. May his love spur us on to love and to forgive just as he has loved and forgiven us. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, we do thank you for this wonderful picture of how you want your people to live together, how you want them to care, how you want them to structure their society and their dealings with one another. Father, we would pray that you make us here a people like that, a people who are quick to forgive, who are quick to care for the needy and the broken, who welcome the stranger and the alien, who are willing to go the extra mile to care for those around us who need our care. But Father, most of all, please help us to be people once again who wonder at the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and bore all of our sin on himself. And who also set for us a pattern, a way of living that fulfills this law. Please help us to walk in his footsteps, loving your family as he has loved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.